You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Now, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I'm very excited to have as my guest today Herb Smith. Uh, Herb was drafted into the Army in 1967 while attending Georgia State. Due to his six-foot height, less than 29-inch waistline, test scores, and his uh, uh, wonderful mannerisms, the Army sent him directly a one-way ticket to the Old Guard, the Third Army in Arlington National Cemetery, where he eventually became a tomb guard at the Tomb of the Unknown. Herb, my friend, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Pete. Glad to be here. I'm, I'm glad to have you, Herb. Uh, tell tell us first, Herb, a little bit about the uh, the first unknown, uh, the beginning of the Tomb of the Unknowns, and a brief history of Arlington National Hem- Hem- uh, Cemetery itself. Okay, uh, probably uh, the the order probably should be the sort of the background history of Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, okay, this is going this is sort of going to be a uh, Paul Harvey moment here. Uh, <laughs> with the rest of the story. There was a uh, young Virginia woman by the name of Martha Dandridge, and she was 17 years old when she married 37-year-old George Park Custis. And those two had a son by the name of John Park Custis. And the father died at age 44, after only seven years, and he left Martha oh, what'd you think about very wealthy. Uh, I think he had five plantations. So she was already a wealthy lady before she married him and became very wealthy upon his death. And that son, John Park Custis, uh, he died at the, at the siege of Yorktown, where he was an aide-de-camp to uh, General George Washington. And he didn't die in battle. He died of a disease. And he had a son that was not quite one year old uh, by the name of George Washington Parkus. Uh, George Washington Park Custis. Now, go figure that one. But John Park Custis, uh, with that one-year-old son, he was Martha's grandson. And Martha had, by that time, married a gentleman by the name of George Washington. So she raised her grandson, and George Washington adopted a George Washington Park Custis. And George Washington Park Custis, this is going to sound like the begats in the Bible. George Washington Park Custis had a daughter named Mary Custis. And George Washington Park Custis began construction on the Arlington House that we now know as Arlington uh, Cemetery in 1802, and it took him 16 years to complete it. He had 2,000, I'm sorry, 1,100 acres of land there along the Potomac River, and of course, if you've ever been to uh, Arlington National Cemetery, you understand that that house overlooks the uh, Potomac and the city of Washington. And Mary Custis married a uh, young U.S. Army officer in 1831 by the name of Robert E. Lee. The Civil War broke out, of course, in April of 1861, and uh, Colonel Lee 
who had just become a colonel not, I think, three months earlier. He was a colonel, and he was summoned to Washington by General Winfield Scott and also by Francis Blair, who was a friend of Abraham Lincoln. And when he went across the river uh, that morning to meet with uh, General Winfield Scott, General Scott offered him the command of the entire Union Army to a colonel who had only been a colonel for three months. He he probably turned him down, if you can believe that. That afternoon, he went over to Francis Blair's office, and Francis Blair offered him the same thing, the command of the entire Union Army, and this time it was in the name of the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. He turned him down. And within a week, Robert E. Lee resigned his commission in the U.S. Army. And within days after that, he accepted the position of commander of the Army and Navy of Virginia. Not long after that, U.S. troops seized Arlington Plantation simply because, not because of Robert E. Lee itself, but because it's high on that hill, militarily strategic, overlooking the Potomac and the city of Washington. And there came became a law sometimes thereafter, probably within the next couple of months, that you had to pay your taxes in person or the federal government would seize your property. And that's what happened, because Robert E. Lee certainly couldn't go pay, go pay the taxes. <laughs> and his wife, his wife tried to through a, an emissary, but they turned her down. So the federal government seized Arlington. So it became federal property, and all during the war, it was occupied by Union troops. And on May 13th, of 1864, which happened to be a uh, Friday, Friday the 13th, 1864, the very first military burial happened at Arlington. And it was a private William Chrisman from Pennsylvania who didn't die in battle but died in a hospital in Washington of disease. And the first military casualty buried there was the next day. That was uh, from a wounded guy at uh, the Battle of Chancellorsville. But the cemetery didn't become a national cemetery until the next month, June of 1864. In 1882, General Lee's son, Robert, Ty- Robert Custis, uh, petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to return Arlington to the family because it was confiscated illegally. And they agreed. So they gave the uh, gave the cemetery, gave the uh, plantation back to the uh, to the Lee family, and then two years later, or three years later, uh, we sold it back to the federal government for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which would be a little over three million dollars today. But one thing that happened in eighteen sixty six to go back a little, there was a general who was the uh, quartermaster general of the Union Army named Montgomery Meggs. Montgomery Meggs hated Robert E. Lee for, for resigning his commission, as did a lot of the Union uh, officers. But General Meggs ordered 2,111 unknown soldiers 
from mostly Manassas or and other some other battlefields there, but 2111, and to be buried in Mrs. Lee's former rose garden, and it's a plot only about 20 by 20 feet. So they buried the bones of those 2111 uh, unknown soldiers, probably both Union and Confederate, so that the Lees could never return to Arlington. Robert E. Lee died in 1870 and was buried in the uh, chapel at what is now Washington and Lee University, and he never did return to, to Arlington. But Mrs. Lee did return. Uh, she never got out of her carriage and uh, was heartbroken, and she died six months later. So uh, that's that's the beginning of uh, Arlington National Cemetery. I know it's a little long, but I like to take you back into history what Martha Washington and George Washington had to do uh, with the uh, cemetery. All right. All right. Well, uh, tell us about the first unknown and the beginning of the Tomb of the Unknowns. Okay. A little background. The armistice between the Allies and Germany was signed on November 11th of 1918, ending the Great War, which we didn't know was World War One until World War Two came along, I guess. But two years later, on November 11th of 1920, England and France uh, buried their unknowns with ceremonies at Westminster Abbey for England and at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Uh, seeing this, Representative Hamilton Fish of New York introduced a resolution uh, into Congress the following month in December to bring home one of America's uh, unknowns from the battlefields of France and bury him with honors in what was the new memorial in front of the new memorial amphitheater uh, in Arlington. And a little background on Hamilton Fish. He was the uh, leader of the Harlem Hellfighters, which was an all-black unit in World War One, so uh, he had he had experience with World War One. So the resolution passed Congress in March of 1921. In October of 1921, 100 years ago last month, four four unknowns were disinterred from four separate American cemeteries in France, and they were brought to the Sherlock-sur-Marne courthouse, which is just northeast of Paris, uh, for the selection. The uh, Sergeant Edward Younger was the uh, one chosen to choose the World War I unknown. And he walked into that room by himself with a uh, wreath of uh, white roses, and he walked around the caskets three times, and then he placed the wreath on the second casket from the right. And later he said that he just felt something calling him to place that wreath on that casket, thinking that he might have served with that unknown. So after the selection, they took him uh, to the port at La Havre, France, to board the USS Olympia. Uh, to be taken to the Washington Naval Yards in Washington. Uh, a little thing about the Olympia, uh, it is birthed today in Philadelphia, and it serves as a museum, so you can uh, go there and visit. And they've had quite a few ceremonies in the past month or so 
uh, regarding the unknowns on the USS Olympia. And a little trivia uh, to this, the escort ship was the USS Reuben James. And oh. no, it, didn't, it didn't, didn't have anything to do with Kenny Rogers. <laughs> but uh, the USS Reuben James was the first military ship sunk by the Germans in World War II. Wow. And it wasn't even World War II yet. It was October 31st of 1941 when the Reuben James was sunk. Wow. But to get back to the unknowns, uh, they birthed the USS Olympia in uh, the Washington Naval Yards. And from there, uh, the unknown was escorted to the Capitol, where he lay in state for a couple of days. And on November 11th of 1921, uh, they had a procession to Arlington National Cemetery uh, for the interment of the World War One unknown. And it was presided over by uh, President Harding and was conferred the Medal of Honor uh, for that World War One unknown. Well, and seven uh, other nations. Herb, Herb, I, yeah, Herb, go ahead. I hate to disturb you. We have to go to our first break. This is very okay, interesting. Cool. So folks, we'll be right back with uh, Toon Guard Herb Smith. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support, so please go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Veterans Day is fast approaching. On November 11th, please don't forget to take a few moments to honor and thank those that have served so bravely. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Herb Smith, a former Tomb Guard at the Tomb of the Unknown. Herb, that was a great explanation about the uh, Tomb of the Unknown, also a brief history of Arlington. But go ahead now and tell us about the Old Guard. That's the Army Army's uh, 3rd Infantry uh, Regiment, and the different duties they perform at Arlington. Okay, the... Uh the Old Guard uh, is the oldest Army unit in the nation. It came into, uh, came into being during the American Revolutionary War, and it got the name the Old Guard during the Mexican-American War. Um, it is the 3rd Infantry Regiment 
and they have been at several uh, locations as headquarters. Uh, before Fort Myer, they were at Fort uh, Snelling. Uh, I believe that's in Michigan. And in 1948, uh, it became the 3rd Infantry Regiment at Fort Myer. So uh, they've been there since then. And the duties, the very first duty of the Old Guard, 3rd Infantry Regiment, is to protect Washington, D.C. in case of an attack or other calamities that may happen. The second, and this is what everybody sees, is all the ceremonial duties that they do, do around Washington, Arlington National Cemetery, and at the White House. So uh, you'll see the 3rd Infantry Regiment everywhere in ceremonies around D.C. Hmm. All right, you were you joined the Army or went into the Army you drafted in 1967. How were you selected to be a member of the Old Guard? Uh, well, I, I, I like to say I didn't join the Army. The Army joined me. I was I was a draft I was a draftee, and uh, I went to uh, from the induction center in Atlanta uh, to Fort Benning Harmony Church for my basic training, and while there I, I happened to score pretty high on on all of my exams, probably except with the with the exception of Signal Corps. And I don't know what I scored on that test because I could never understand all those dots and dashes during the test. So I don't think I did well in that. But at any rate, while I was at Fort Benning, uh, they offered me uh, a position in the uh, OCS training class in September. So I accepted that. And for advanced infantry training, uh, they sent me and two other guys to Fort Lewis, Washington, for a leadership prep course, which was two weeks before uh, AIT, which is Advanced Infantry Training or Advanced Individual Training. But my basic training unit, probably 90% of them received orders to go to Fort Pope, Louisiana, uh, Tigerland, which uh, was just a stepping off point for Vietnam. So uh, when I was at Fort Lewis, about two weeks before I was to uh, go to OCS, it got canceled. So they gave me options of uh, choosing another MOS and be open for worldwide assignment. MOS is military occupation specialty, by the way, or your job title. And not be guaranteed it. Or you can uh, choose another OCS, which I did. I chose artillery. And a week later, that came back and got canceled. And the third thing was, if you qualified for flight school for helicopters uh, after taking a few tests, then you would be open for U.S. assignments. So I took those tests and did pretty well on them. So I was open for a U.S. assignment until I get orders for uh, flight training. So I happened to be assigned to Fort Myer, Virginia. So that's, that's how I got to Fort Myer. Ooh. All right. Now... How did you, how were you chosen? I mean, who picked you out? How did that happen that they said, this guy, it looks good for the old guard? Okay. Uh, I, I don't know that. I, I was 6'2 and probably weighed 160 pounds, so I, I fit the mold, uh, being uh, trim and tall. And 
you filtered at that time the honor guard company was company e in the battalion uh, and the battalion i think had probably six companies uh, but company e was the honor guard company it was the elite company of the battalion and they filtered everybody that came into the old guard through the honor guard company so i was filtered through with 12 other people and after three days of training arms manuals marching, et cetera, uh, I was the only one that was chosen to stay in the Honor Guard Company, which they assigned me to the U.S. Army drill team. So right. the next few months, I was uh, on the drill team. All right. Now, you were also uh, what's called a Sentinel, uh, badge number 070. Tell us about that training and the pride of holding an honor badge. Okay. Uh, from the Army drill team, uh, I was selected uh, sort of surreptitiously uh, and asked if I wanted to go to the JFK uh, gravesite detail, which had, which had just opened in July of 67, and this was in October of, 60, October of 67. And uh, I, I was honored, and to go to the JFK gravesite, uh, that's basically a training ground for the tomb. So uh, after about three months at JFK, uh, I went into the Tomb Guard uh, platoon in March of 1968. So the JFK gravesite was cush duty. I mean, no one. <laughs> Once some of the guys got there, and probably 75% of the guys got there, they didn't want to train for the tomb because this was so easy. So uh, I kept training on my off days. We basically worked one day out of uh, four. I'm sorry, one day out of three. And those other two days, I was training at the tomb down in the uh, catacombs of the Memorial Amphitheater. And uh, fortunately, was uh, chosen for a relief. All right. Tell us about the number 21. Okay. The uh, 21 uh, represents the 21-gun salute, and it's the military's highest honor. So when we walk at the tomb, we walk 21 steps down the mat. We turn and face the tomb, count 21 seconds, turn and face back down the mat, count 21 seconds, and do 21 steps. And you do that for your time on the mat. Today, they're only walking a half hour during the summertime. Uh, But we were walking one hour uh, during daylight hours at the tomb the whole time that I was there and then two hours at night. But the 21-gun salute originated back in probably the 1500s when the naval ships, when they were approaching another country's uh, ports, they would empty their guns. And it mostly was a 21-gun salute. So that's that's how the 21-gun salute became the highest military honor. Well, uh, that I did not know. Herb, uh, describe your uniform and the special shoes issued to a tomb guard. Okay, well, the uh, the uniform is the Army dress blues, and the Army dress blues have, have been around at least since my time. They've changed very little. Uh, during my time, the, the uh, dark blue blouse, as the tomb guards call it, or a jacket, which everyone else would call, is reminiscent of the uh, Continental Army, of the American Revolution. And the trousers are the color of the Union blue 
in the Civil War. Now, when I was there, uh, enlisted personnel had twin gold stripes down the pants. But today, uh, everyone, officers and enlisted, have the solid gold stripes down the pants. Both are 100% wool. And, yeah, that sounds counterproductive during the summer in Washington. But the reason that wool is used is because it holds a crease better than any other material there is. Huh. In, a, in addition to that, you have a blue and gold belt with a bayonet scabbard that goes around the waist, and then a white shirt, black tie, white gloves, black socks, and then the shoes are standard military issue, but they've been triple-soled uh, so that it protects it, not to make us taller. I know some people think maybe we're a little uh, conceited and we want to look taller, but it's not. Uh, they're triple-soled to protect the uh, tomb guard's feet from the extreme heat and cold there on the plaza. There's a uh, steel horseshoe on the plate on the hills and then a steel toe plate on the toe. And on the inside of the hills are steel plates, and they're about a quarter of an inch thick with uh, three screws in them. So when you hear those clicks at the tomb, that's what it is. And that's not just to be fancy. What that is reminiscent of is the uh, first tomb guards and those still clicks, that, those clicks that you hear today, uh, is to remind us of those cavalry units spurs back when they first started. Huh. Uh, now, you, you can't deviate from that uniform, but you are allowed one official indulgence. What is that? <laughs> My official indulgence. I, I'm at a loss here, Pete. Uh, we talked before. Oh, oh, that. Okay. Uh, sunglasses. And we don't wear those to look cool, by the way. We wear those sunglasses uh, because on the plaza, when it's really sunny out, the glare could give you something akin uh, to snow blindness. And back then, we had Ray-Bans. Today, they have uh, Oakleys. And I get questions quite a few, uh, quite a bit at least once a month, about what are the, what are the uh, sunglasses that are worn by the Tim Guards. And they're an Oakley brand, and they're called Square Whiskers. I've never had any, but uh, I still wear the old Ray-Bans. You once told me, Herb, the temperature of that concrete during a hot summer day can reach, uh, what degree did you, do you remember it? it Yes, yes, it reaches 135 degrees in the summertime. So that's the reason those uh, triple soles help. Oh, my goodness gracious. All right, <clears throat> what type of rifle do you guys carry, and why was it chosen? Uh, as the Okay, uh, the, the rifle today is the M14, and the M14 came into existence in the late 50s, replacing the M1 Garand. And... The uh, Tomb Guards are the 3rd Infantry regi Regiment adopted the uh, M14 in the very early 60s. Before that, the Springfield 1903 was in existence for the Tomb Guards beginning in 1926. And then, then late 1948, I believe, or the late 1940s, uh, the M1 Garand 
replaced the 1903 Springfield. And then in 61 or 62, the M14 came into existence. Now, the M14 is the, the 3rd Infantry Regiment, is the only uh, Army unit that utilizes the M14, and that is only because of ceremonial duties. And I think we will continue using that M14, even though the M16 and subsequent uh, improved uh, modern rifles have been in existence. Now, all of the old guard soldiers, including tube guards, have to qualify uh, with the modern weapons. But wow. for ceremonial duties, we only gotcha. use the M14. Gotcha. Got to interrupt you again. I'm sorry. We're going to our second break. Very interesting stuff. We'll be right back, folks. Stay with us. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with uh, Herb Smith, former tomb guard at the Tomb of the Unknown. Herb, you were talking about the tomb guards. They utilized the M14 rifle, which was a darn good rifle, but a little bit too heavy for usage in the jungles of Vietnam. And the Army eventually went to the M16 and several other variations. Uh, Yet they still use the M14. Why don't they use the M16? Well, the M14 is much easier on the uh, manual of arms than with an M16. And also the uh, magazine, uh, you'll notice on the M14s even that we don't have the magazines in. And the rifles are not loaded, even though they're fully functional, if they did have a magazine and ammo. But uh, the M14 is much easier uh for the ceremonial duties of the old guard. But they do have M16 backups, I believe, in all of the uh, units there at the old guard. Huh. You know, you were talking about your first job was basically what they call pedestrian control at the grave site for John, President John Kennedy. Uh, tell us a little bit about your duties, but also uh, the visit by the Kennedy family. You met Rose Kennedy, his mother. And tell us about the Catholic nun. Okay. The, uh, my duty at uh, JFK was essentially there were two sentinels, one at the bottom uh, at the street and then one at the top uh, where the eternal flame is. And essentially we were pedestrian control to uh, keep people safe and sound. And at that time, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the memorial had just opened to uh, tourists on in July of 1967, and this was uh, 
late 67 when I was there, so we had huge crowds. And the Kennedy family would normally come out after hours, after cemetery hours, and we would get a call and let us know that they were coming, so we would stay over uh, to escort them up to the grave site at that time. But uh, Rose Kennedy, one day when I was on duty uh, at the bottom of this uh, memorial, uh, she came up for a visit unannounced. So I escorted her up, and uh, she knelt down on the granite in front of uh, John Kennedy's uh, gravesite and the eternal flame. And when she started to get back up, she was struggling, so I reached down to help her. And I asked her if, if if I could help her, was everything okay? <laughs> and she said uh, something like, no, I'm just fine. It's those damn rocks. <laughs> so I, uh, I have a warm place in my heart for uh, Rose Kennedy. But uh, there was a group of nuns, and of course, John Kennedy being Catholic, uh, we had a lot of uh, Catholic nuns and priests uh, to visit. And one day I had a uh, a nun that was digging into, we had two urns that had sand in them on each side of the steps leading up to uh, the gravesite. And this nun was digging sand out of one of the urns and putting it in her purse. And... I can tell you that people were trying to get souvenirs everywhere. They were pulling grass. They were uh, tearing off the twigs of the shrubbery. But this is the first time that I ever had someone digging into the urn. And and I asked her, uh, please don't do that. And she says, you mean I can't take it? I said, no, ma'am. And she says, well, doesn't this symbolize ashes to ashes and dust to dust? And I said, no, ma'am, that indicates that it's a uh, cigarette butt can. And she, she was a little embarrassed. But uh, I'm, I'm sure that had I, not, had I not discouraged her from getting the sand, it would have ended up on some shelf in her convent somewhere. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, great story. Uh, tell us a little bit about your off-duty and your day's off routine. Okay, essentially, at that time, we were on 24 hours. We only had at full strength, four sentinels, and one relief commander. So we were working, uh, usually walking one hour on and then three hours off, and at nighttime, two hours on and six hours off. But we never had a full relief, so we were working more than that. But we worked 24 hours, and we're off 48 hours. And during that first 24 hours off, you basically sweat and try to uh, try to catch up on sleep for the night before, and then on the second day off, before you go on the next day, uh, you were prepping your uniforms to make sure that uh, they were perfect shape, shining your shoes, and I know most people don't understand this, and probably even military people, that all of your medals and everything had to be within one sixty-fourth of an inch, and they were uh, measured with a micrometer. So you had to pay special attention to what you did to the uniform. But that second day, you were just preparing to go on the next day. And we didn't have orderlies to take care of us. We took care of our own uniforms. 
Wow. Uh, you were talking a little bit about the shifts. What was the normal shift of the tomb guard? Okay, the normal shift uh, at that time was 24 hours on and 48 hours off. But today they're on a 26-hour schedule, which is sort of a modified uh, 24 on, 48 off. And they may work two or three days in a row and then get more days off. They may work three days in a row and then get six days off. But it's still sort of a modified uh, modified 24 on, 48 off. But they have uh, a squad strength schedule for each. There are three reliefs, by the way. And each relief uh, should have eight people in spots. But, but there's a... Just like it was when I was there, it's hard to get people to train and get in there. Uh, so they're always not at full strength either. And a couple of times in the past couple of years, they've gone with two reliefs versus three because of lack of personnel. Wow. Uh, what's, what is the sergeant of the guard? Okay, the sergeant of the guard is a rank E7, which is a sergeant first class. And he is essentially the platoon sergeant. And over him, there is a uh, captain who is the uh, platoon leader. But he generally has other duties, too, not just the tomb. So the sergeant of the guard, uh, you will see them uh, during the state uh, wreath layings, the big wreath layings. The sergeant of the guard is usually the wreath bearer, but he is uh, the platoon sergeant, just like a platoon sergeant in any other military segment. All right. And also, a little bit of a sad note here, I want you to tell the folks about the sergeant of the guard that came in from Vietnam. Uh, Sergeant uh, First Class Morris Moore uh, replaced my original tomb guard, uh, Sergeant of the Guard, who uh, was sent to Vietnam, and Sergeant Moore had come back a couple of months, a couple of three months earlier, and he was also my uh, platoon sergeant when I was at JFK, but he became the uh, platoon sergeant at uh, the tomb. He already had his badge, so he was a perfect addition. He was not quite as tight as uh, the previous uh, platoon sergeant, but he was very likable, and he had been in some heavy stuff in Vietnam. He was uh, in the uh, LURPS, the LRRP, the Long Range Reconnaissance Patrols. And he came back from Vietnam, uh, and I'm sure the demons of Vietnam were too much for him, and he drank a lot, and he, he was good ceremonially, ceremonially, but uh, administration-wise, he was not so good. I don't know how long he stayed there. He was still my sergeant of the guard uh, when I got out in April of 69. But uh, two years later, uh, Sergeant Moore uh, took his own life. He was still fighting those demons. And I will, uh, I will, he's buried at Arlington, and I will be uh, placing a rose on his grave on Sunday the 14th. Very good, very good. Uh, so many stories like that from Vietnam. What about the weather, Herb? You guys serve in all kinds of weather. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> serving in that weather. Well, 
when I was there, uh, of course, the uh, dress blues that we talked about earlier are used uh, when it's 45 degrees or above and not inclement weather, no rain or snow. And we have two other pieces of uniform. We do have an overcoat uh, that we used, and we had no ear protection. We just used the regular military dress blue hat or cover. And uh, we used the overcoat when it was under 45 degrees. And during rain and snow, we had a raincoat. And again, no ear protection. Today, they have these nice fur-lined hats with, that covers the ears. and We also had white cotton gloves, as I described. No, I didn't describe that in the uniform, but we had white cotton gloves that we wet, uh, with, uh, sprayed them with water before we went up so that we can hold on to the rifle better. And we even did that in, when it was 20 degrees out. And today they've got these nice fleece-lined leather gloves that they use. So uh, I would have killed for that uniform back in the day, but uh, things improved with time. Wow. So many little details that people don't know about the Tomb Guards. You receive orders from, for uh, Vietnam. What happened? Yes. <laughs> we, as, as you probably, if you've been there, you know that the uh, Pentagon is about a mile away uh, to the southeast of the tomb, and Fort Myer is attached or adjacent uh, to the cemetery on the west side. And I had, we had been told, I hadn't seen the orders yet, but uh, we had received word through the uh, first sergeant of Honor Guard Company, uh, through the sergeant of the guard, that there are three of us, they had what they called quota levies, and the quota levies were not by name. They just basically threw a dart and picked names that way. And they had chosen, uh, by that method, three of us from the tomb. And I was one of them, and we had two other guys. And that was basically 25% of the tomb guards. And I said earlier, we weren't at full strength at any time. And to take 25% of a full strength is pretty tough. Well, just so happens that afternoon, it had to be October or November, uh, General Westmoreland, who was then the uh, chief of staff, he came through. His normal routine, I guess, was to drive through the cemetery from the Pentagon because it was a shortcut and back to Fort Myer where his home was. And he stopped in the tomb quarters. And I had never met him before, but of course, when you walk into the tomb quarters in the lobby area, I happen to be down there, and any time an officer walks into the room, you yell attention. So I yell attention so that everybody in the quarters would come come to attention. And uh, General Westmoreland sort of put his hands down like, you don't have to do that. And then he said at ease, and I did too. And he asked, at that time, I was a spec four. I was a specialist. I wasn't a sergeant yet, but I was a spec four. And I introduced myself as Specialist Smith and asked him how I could assist him. He said that he just uh, wanted to stop by and see how things were going. Uh, the tomb guards were held in very high regard, even up through the general staff. So uh, 
he was really cool about how he was talking. And he asked me how it was going. I said, it was going fine today. And he said, anything happening? I said, well, three of us just got orders from Vietnam, I, for Vietnam, I assume, and because we hadn't seen them yet. And he said something like, they can't do that. And then my brain, my brain just shrugged, you know, what, what am I to say? Well, the next day, uh, two of us had our orders rescinded. And besides that, I don't think they would have taken me anyway because I only had about six months, seven months to go. And I think normally they take you when you have 12 or 13 months left. So I wasn't, I didn't know if I'd have to go or not, but if I did, I would have. But the next day they rescinded. Yeah, go ahead. I think think Gerald Westmore had had something to say about that. All right, uh, folks, uh, we're going to, uh, thank God for Westmoreland. Uh, Folks, we're going to our last break. We'll be right back with you. Stand by. Veterans Day is fast approaching. On November 11th, please don't forget to take a few moments to honor and thank those that have served so bravely. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Veterans Day is fast approaching. On November 11th, please don't forget to take a few moments to honor and thank those that have served so bravely. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with uh, Herb Smith, former tomb guard at the Tomb of the Unknown. Herb, I know that in February of 1969, you received another set of orders for Rotary School. In other words, you were going to uh, helicopter train. What happened to that? Well, I had received, uh, I had uh, been called to the uh, first sergeant's office of the Honor Guard Company. And when I got there, uh, those orders that I had been expecting since AIT had come through for flight training. And the first sergeant said, I have uh, your orders for flight training to report to Fort Walters, Texas on a certain date. And that's, I think, Fort Walters was the preliminary area for flight training before you went to Fort Rucker. So uh, he looked at me and he says, you don't want to do this, Sergeant Smith. <laughs> and I thought about it for, it probably thought about it for uh, five minutes, which was really just 10 seconds. And in those 10 seconds, I thought about, wait, I am, I have gotten married since AIT. I have a baby on the way and I'm only three months away from my, or two months away from, uh, being discharged from the Army. So uh, in those five minutes in my head, which were only five or ten seconds, I said, you're right, First Sergeant, uh, please rescind those. He said I can, He said he could rescind those orders. So I said, thank you very much, please do so. So that was, uh, I've sort of regretted that 
since that time because I, if they had done it earlier, I would certainly have done it earlier. But uh, at that point in time in my life with a new wife and a baby on the way, I decided that was best that uh, I not do that. So you would have to re-up, which meant uh, had you survived Vietnam because you were destined to go there as a chopper pilot, uh, you probably made a career of the Army. Is that correct? Yes, you would have to re-up for another four years. And if you watched out of flight school, you were still obligated for those years remaining. So uh, had I done that and survived uh, and became a warrant officer, you know, basically you really have to screw up to get fired as a warrant officer uh, versus a regular officer. So uh, I probably would have uh, stayed in for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. that's probably a wise choice you made, Herb. <laughs> All right, now you left the so. Army. Yeah, you left the Army, and you retired from Michelin Tire after 39 years uh, working as a sales representation or sales uh, representative. Sales representative. I'll get the word out there later. Uh, what have you been doing in your retirement, there, Mr. Smith? Well, I, as Pete said, I retired from uh, Michelin. I was. Uh, sales uh, in various sales positions around the country and I retired uh, will be 10 years ago in December and since that time I the Society of the Honor Guard to the Unknown Soldier is the organization that I belong to I'm a life member and our outreach programs uh, ask us if we're so amenable to doing so is to uh, do speaking engagements so that's basically what I've been doing for these 10 years, I uh, quit playing golf, so I don't have that addiction anymore. And I speak to uh, patriotic uh, organizations and schools, etc. The uh, Daughters of the American Revolution seems to be the majority of my, uh, my speaking engagements. I dearly love those folks because they are so into history, and uh, it's, it's very nice to do so. And even to some of Pete's organizations, I've spoken to a couple of those. <laughs> I know. I love your presentations, and the people that hear you love them, too. I think everybody has a special place in their hearts for the Tomb Guards. Um, Herb, you also have a presentation about World War One now, don't you? You know, I created the presentation for the Centennial, which... Is coming up uh, on Veterans Day. That's the uh, 100th anniversary of the internment of the World War One unknown. And I volunteered to create a World War One uh, presentation, and I gave it uh, three or four, maybe three times, and it sort of bit the dust for some reason. Uh, the society, uh, in our infinite wisdom, after I worked for weeks on this thing. Uh, it didn't seem to resonate with the uh, public. So uh, I, that presentation is still in my PowerPoint here, but uh, I have not given that probably in about a year. Kind of. And World War One. Uh, wow, if people studied that history, they would they'd be amazed at the amount of casualties that we took during that, our participation in the war and also the other participants in that war. Uh, Herb, I want you to. So there's a lot of rumors about honor guards uh, and the former armor guards. Uh, honor guards. What? 
tell us a little bit about those and dispel some of those rumors. <laughs> okay. Uh, you'll see these Internet rumors. Uh, they crop up quite often. And I answer uh, emails sent in to our society from the public, uh, and I get about four or five a day. And invariably, these are some of them. Is it true that a tomb guard cannot drink alcohol or curse for the remainder of their life? <laughs> now, while most of us former tomb guards do try to control our language a little, uh, from time to time we could probably hit our thumbs with a hammer. So, And first of all, it's, it's not a rule. And secondly, who the heck would report it? And uh, we do have, uh, as far as drinking, uh, we do have uh, social hours at our tomb guard reunions that uh, we have every two years. And the uh, first uh, night is sort of an icebreaker, and there's a uh, free bar. So uh, even though just about all of us drink alcohol, maybe not all, at least a good percentage of us drink alcohol, I've uh, never seen anybody drunk. So uh, that is definitely not true about alcohol either. Okay. Another one is uh, a tomb guard in training can't talk for six months on or off duty. And as that's definitely not true. Uh, the trainee must uh, respond to commands and questions from the trainers. And we can talk as much as we want to during downtime or off-duty hours. And by the way, uh, the, the training, only about 1 in 20 of the trainees who start uh, tomb guard training make it through. So only 5% make it through, but we can talk. The... Uh, Another one is a tomb guard must commit two years of his life to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, living in barracks under the amphitheater. Uh, those are living quarters under the amphitheater, but they're not barracks. And uh, we're only there uh, for 24, 26 hours every uh, three days or so. And he can live off post. He can live in an apartment or he, or he can live on post in the barracks, which is a lot better today than I was there. But the average time that a tomb guard serves is 12 to 14 months, even though we've had a couple that have been there for over four years. I don't know how they did it for four years, but they were. So uh, those those are three of the major ones that come up in these Internet rumors. Okay. are you? I know that the tomb badge is rare. How, how rare is it for a or a woman to have a tomb badge? Okay, uh, first of all, there have been five women uh, that have earned the Tomb Guard badge. But the Tomb Guard badge is the second least awarded military uh, medal, and the first one is the astronaut's badge. And I am Tomb Guard badge number 70. Uh, this became, became awarded uh, starting in 1958, and as of uh, last month, we are up to 693. So about 12 per year are awarded. And this is the only badge, military medal, that can be revoked even during civilian life. So if I went out here and did something bad today to bring dishonor or disrespect to the tomb, uh, my badge number 70 could be revoked. And we've had about 20 of those revoked over the years. What's my next question? Uh, how can you lose the tomb badge? I knew that you could. But uh, uh, what are some of the real no-nos? 
Well, just don't bring dishonor to the tomb. I mean, I I don't know all of the uh, extenuating circumstances to those 20 revocations, but uh, somehow I think most of those are from bringing dishonor while you were in the service. And I, I don't know the details of any of them, but it got back to somebody somewhere. And probably three or four are from in civilian life. So, um, I, I don't, again, I don't know the details of any of them. Yeah. Well, I have uh, I visited Arlington many times, especially when I went up there with the honor flights for the World War II veterans. Uh, always very impressive ceremony. I love those guys. But uh, one time, somebody got a little bit, well, they went under the ropes and got a little bit too close to things. And that guard challenged that young lady. And, boy, she got back where she belonged. Did you ever have to confront anyone when you were a tomb guard? Uh, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I did. We have about three different uh, speeches or spills uh, for people acting unruly or coming within the chains or whatever. Uh, on my major one that I remember mostly was on Bobby Kennedy's uh, day of his funeral, which actually took place that night. Uh, I was on duty that afternoon and walking the mat, and I noticed a guy at a, there's a fountain about 100, 150 yards away from the tomb, and he looked kind of uh, sketchy down there. And as I made my 21 seconds, 21 steps a couple of times, uh, he's coming up the steps to the tomb. At that time, you could do that. And then he started coming over the chains, and he had on a World War II Eisenhower jacket. And he was yelling, I've got to get a message to President Wilson. Now, he was about 50 years too late for that. But uh, I came down with a real, real hard port arms. And, of course, we aren't armed with ammo, but we do have that little pointy thing on the end of the rifle. And, and it scared him enough that he ran away into the cemetery, and he was apprehended by the MPs. All right, good. Hey, Herb, I'm sorry. I have to end this thing. We're out of time. Great, great interview. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Excellent program. Thank you very much. Tomb Guard Herb Smith. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.